0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Accord Research Alliance podcast. My name is Nathan Maloney, and I work at Living Water International as the Senior Director for Program Development and also one of the co-hosts of this podcast. Uh, So thanks for coming back or checking this podcast out. If it's your first time, hopefully you enjoy it and subscribe and tell others who might be interested in it about it. In today's episode, I'm talking with Michael Woolcock. He is the lead social scientist in the World Bank's Development Research Group. And for the past 12 years, he's also been a lecturer at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. He's a sociologist by training, and he's written quite a bit about culture, social development, and social capital. Michael is also on the editorial board for Accord's new journal, uh, which is called the Christian Relief Development and Advocacy Journal. So I asked him what might be some good prompts or ideas for papers that he would like to see submitted. And so if you're looking to submit, since there is an open call for papers right now, you can perhaps run with one of these ideas. But in addition to that, we also talk about his journey to the World Bank and Harvard from his home in Australia. He gives his thoughts on what some of his most impactful research and work has been over his career. We dive into uh, his recent book, which is on building state capability and uh, get into a little bit on his approach or even advocacy for really taking a mixed methods approach to research when it comes to international development so it was a great conversation i really enjoyed it and i hope
1: you will as well the reality is that even the most hardened people that have been in this business a long time eventually you just you have an experience in a fieldwork type setting which just i don't know what to do with this i just don't i don't know how to capture this in, in, in within the methodological frame that, that i'm used to
0: Great. Well, Michael, can you tell us a little bit about your background, uh, what led you to work at the World Bank, and what made you want to pursue this kind of work?
1: I think in my mid-20s, I figured out what I was actually good at, and I'll come back to that in a little bit. And then it was a matter of what's the right place for me. Me to deploy that what I think I'm minimally good at, <laughs> and uh, I grew up in Australia, so this was a big decision to that I made to uh, uh, explore graduate studies in the United States, and that would mean leaving my otherwise very functional family and wonderful group of friends that I had there, and putting my pole on my shoulder and, and heading off overseas, and. Uh, I knew at that stage, in my mid-20s, that I wanted to do a PhD in sociology, that's what I had, that's the intellectual space that I found most accommodating for the kinds of things I wanted to do. Um, But I then decided also that I wanted to do all of this in international development, and that came out of... Uh, part of the uh, a youth group that I was really part of in my late teens and through my mid-20s that met very regularly and that uh, just made, through that sort of discerning process it became clear to me that I, for <laughs> without any great uh, particular background or, or intellect scholarly background or experience, that this would be a this would be the space that I would try and make myself useful in. Uh, so I, I came to the United States in the early 90s for my for my PhD, which I did at, you know, at Brown University. Um, but I didn't, again, didn't start that thinking my heart was set on a, on a life and a career at the, at the World Bank. I just uh, was making it up as I went along in that sort of sense. I had come from an academic family, I kind of, and I had had an academic appointment in Australia before I, I even came to graduate school here. So. I kind of logically presumed that would be the next thing to come for me, but uh, I, through a combination of good luck and good management, I guess, or or faith, or I don't know, something, I uh, happened to be finishing my PhD at the time when the World Bank's research department, for the first and only time in its history, uh, opened itself up to a a non-economist. It's a group here at the in Washington that's about in between, depending on the year, between about 70 and 100 staff uh, that are exclusively economists, except for me. But one time in the 1997, when they decided to open up the gates to the, the barbarians from the outside, uh, I decided I put my hand up for it. And uh, that was a long process that eventually resulted in me uh, being get offered an opportunity to come and begin my post-PhD life here at the World Bank, and I would faced the choice between being sort of the token sociologist in an economic-centered research department or the token development guy in, a, in an academic sociology department, and I wagered that uh, I could do the sociology part. <laughs> uh, what I really wanted to learn more about and, and experience more directly was the, the multilateral organizations of the world and how they actually do things and what a development project looks like and how you design one and how you get it funded and how you evaluate it and how you implement it and those things are all abstractions to most people when you haven't actually worked in an organization and uh that does that kind of work and i decided that's what i wanted to do so uh and then soon after that i I got an opportunity to uh have a part-time teaching appointment at the Kennedy School at Harvard, and uh, that's been, with variations along the way, pretty much my life for the last 18 years or so of uh, uh, working uh, most of the week in, in Washington, doing my work for the doing my work for the development research group at the World Bank, and then in the spring in particular teaching a a part-time class up there at the Kennedy School. So yeah, uh, yeah. a long journey and still unfinished, but uh, that's kind of the the narrative arc in in its short form.
0: That's great. Well, that sounds like a great uh, journey and something fun to be a part of, I'm sure, at the World Bank as a non-economist, part of the research group uh, there, and the perspective you can bring. And uh, you do have quite an impressive CV as I was kind of looking through it uh, with more than 75 journal articles uh, over or 10 books you've been a part of in different ways. And so obviously on this podcast, we're not going to cover all of the research you've done. But I was curious in looking back, what would you say has been the most interesting or the most impactful research you've done?
1: I think there's been two different ways in which I've tried to make a, both a, a scholarly contribution and a substantive policy uh, contribution to the way in which people think about issues and, uh, and then try and design responses to them. Um, in the scholarly domain... Um, a lot of our, a lot of the claiming and a lot of the contests in, in the in the scholarly world turns on being how and well people have assessed development interventions of one kind. And of course, everybody wants to know, well, did it work, or for whom did this work, and how well did this work? And there's a whole you know, a series of tools and techniques one can deploy to try and answer those kind of questions. And over the last 20 years, there's been a lot of Effort to try and ramp up the the quality and frequency with uh, with which those evaluations are done, partly in an accountability sense, just because uh, oftentimes one's using public money for public purposes, and there's just a built-in need for an accountability mechanism in that space. But even for more uh, you know, smaller, more focused NGOs, they're they're, they're still trying to make claims to. You know, every, everyday citizens to pony up $100 a month, maybe, to sort of help them out with their work. And people kind of want to know whether what they're doing is, is making a difference or not. Um, so my – in the scholarly contribution, my sense was really to try and help people recognize that, uh, that the kinds of trajectories that were uh, – characterizing uh, different dimensions were often often looked very different. We tend to assume that we have a baseline, for example, of what happened before the project and we collect some data afterwards and then we, depending on how well we've sampled on both of those sides, we can sort of make claims about whether impacts have occurred or not. But it and always occurred to me that we just never got from here to there in a straight line, and most of the when you've only got sort of these two pockets of data, one at the beginning and one at the end, you, the, the mathematics of just comparing before and after is very clear. But it was it was almost. Self-evident to me from the kind of things that I read and the kinds of processes in history that I study, that you never get from here to there in a straight line. There's there's, there's lots of processes that take decades to unfold. There's lots of issues like women's empowerment for them that are centuries or thousands of years still and unresolved. So uh, the notion that we could sort of uh, crunch all Stuff down into a two or three or five year project and can do a uh, baseline and follow up and then waltz confidently into a meeting or to a congressional committee or whatever and sort of say, yes, we know that this works, um, just seemed to me uh, willfully ignorant of the fact that there are so many different types of interventions that we are doing. And those all those interventions were on, on different journeys, the different paths that they got from here to there by very different uh, tr- impact trajectory uh, shapes, and one needed to therefore have a very rich dialogue between one's evidence and one's theory in order to be able to make claims about impact and by extension what we hope would happen in the future, what, we'd, what would happen when we scaled this up, what would happen when we took this into a novel context, Uh, And I've I've found myself uh, contributing quite frequently into that kind of space because the temptation as a a researcher is always to focus almost explicitly on the methodology. All the the fights that one has in a seminar are all around method. (laughs) And I was really just trying to say, well, good scholarship is about a dialogue between method and theory. And we need to have those kind of conversations as well. The other uh, more uh, policy oriented kind of space, which draws in some sense on what I just said, um, is bound build, uh, efforts to build the rule of law. That's one of those nice issues in the world around which the political left and the political right agree, maybe for different reasons, but there's lots of nodding heads in any seminar room you give, whether it was at the Brookings Institution, or the American Enterprise Institute, or anywhere else, where where people would say yes, 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 we're all very supportive of the importance of the rule of law. And you would think uh, that if there was this big ideological consensus and an agreement between rich and poor countries across the global north and south, again everybody sort of agrees that this is something that's a defining characteristic of what development's about. And uh, if there was, and there is such a consensus. And just, you would think that would map very nicely onto a well thought out theory and body of experience about how to actually do that. But it's been a, a defining characteristic of this field for decades that it's just one of the least, uh, has, has the most modest track record, shall we say, of, of any of the uh, fields, uh, subfields of, of development where policy activity of one kind or another is trying to do its thing. And, uh, trying to explain sort of why this was so hard to do. Why, why, despite the fact that everybody agrees on it, it's not, uh, is this particular task so difficult? And, uh, work that I did for many years with a, a program here at the World Bank that I helped set up and, and populate and fund, uh, was as the justice for the poor program. And we, we did worked on that for about the best part of 15 years or so, uh, looking at all sorts of transitions in, in rural systems from the more formal, uh, the more traditional and, and customary mechanisms of dispute resolution and how development broadly defined, began to codify all of that and turn it into laws and guys with uh, robes and wigs and hammers sort of dispensing this thing called justice. and. Uh, Trying to track the processes by which those uh, transitions did or did not happen uh, was 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 a much at a much more granular level, not just by reading more books about it, but actually going out and having large teams of people in the field studying how these actually play out in real time. I think has really helped to contribute to. Uh, a whole broader recognition around the role of justice, and I'm certainly not going to claim any causal role in this, but the the fact that access to justice for all is now enshrined in the Sustainable Development Goal number 16 is sort of one manifestation of a, of a, a broader awareness across the development community that uh, uh, procedural justice, how things happen, as well as whether things happen, is uh, is a really crucial part of um, life and a really crucial component of Having in place effective mechanisms for dealing with all the contests that are that are surround development. So, Mm -hmm. those are the two big areas. I like to think that I've uh, uh, made a a modest contribution, um, Mm -hmm. but always done with teams of amazing people, and uh, and that's really where I I want to see further work happening as well. That's
0: great. Yeah, and um, and just real quick, going back to the kind of the first point um, you were making about development never being a straight line. I think that's something that jumped out to me just as someone working at an NGO to where we are doing a lot of baselines and inlines lines and, uh, and, and doing those calculations you're talking about. Um, I think that's a helpful lens uh, to be thinking about for us. And so uh, I want to talk a little bit about your more recent work, uh, which is a book that came out in 2017 titled Building State Capability, Evidence analysis action, and it was co-authored with Matt Andrews and Lant Pritchett. And uh, in the book, you state that we argue that building an organizational or governmental capability to implement is of primary importance for realizing development objectives. And so, I'm just kind of curious what what led you uh, to want to write this book.
1: Uh, well my co authors matt and Lant, uh, were former world bank staff members they're at the kennedy school um, and that 's where I teach as well so we we 'd had lots of interaction over many years and uh, uh, because we've had, we both all three of us have had this sort of weird hybrid life bouncing between sort of uh, elite academia and and sort of high power big development agencies that it just it had always seemed a little strange to us that so much of the debate amongst the Chattering classes, as it were, was about policy, my policy versus your policy. And there should be policy implications that follow from research. And uh, it seemed to us, uh, and especially in my work on justice and, and Matt's work on public sector reform and, and Lance's work on health and education, that's uh, it wasn't that, you know, obviously good policy matters. There is such a thing as good policy and all the rest of it. I and mean, we want what you want good policy. <laughs> but the bigger question was well, can the prevailing administrative apparatus that's tasked with turning that policy into reality actually do that work? And we were just, we were in a work that we were doing, there were plenty of countries that had perfectly good policies on paper. There wasn't sort of some obvious thing they should be doing differently as articulated in. In policy. The problem was that the systems in place were just unable or unwilling to be able to do the kinds of work that their, their policy apparatus was was charged with doing. And that sort of work in the multilateral agencies sort of gets usually uh, cast as something called uh, capacity building of one kind or another. And it, again, so it wasn't that this issue was ignored, but even there, in in this, when it was addressed, it seemed to us that the dominant ways in which this was addressed was through, you know, technology upgrades. We need you know, they're, they're running a public financial management system with sort of technology from the 1960s. They should uh, modernize and upgrade, and we can fund. Uh, so you can spend multiple millions of dollars on a whole new fancy uh, uh software package to be able to run your public finances and that looks very impressive but it always <laughs> when matt was doing that kind of work he just said well it's just kind of weird because the old system keeps on going because that's what people actually know how to use and this all this new stuff is just yeah. is just epiphenomenal it's sort of just resi- it, it's like camouflage it really exists on the surface and Makes things look nice. It can convey some form of external legitimacy, but isn't actually doing the work that a a financial management information system is supposed to be doing. Similarly, you can build out lots of schools, you can print lots of textbooks, you can even train teachers. You can all the ingredients uh, are things that we know how to do. But the state of education around the world, not just in terms of whether Kids show up for school every day, but whether they actually learn stuff when they get there—that's that's that's the much bigger uh, bigger issue. And there can be a whole range of reasons why those systems aren't functioning. Oftentimes, they're just vastly inadequately funded. Or there's just you know, quite organised opposition to to what the to what those actors are trying to do, especially the justice sector. Um, even so, we just thought there were, there was just so often the, the the strategies that were used by external organisations of one kind or another seemed to us to be part of the problem and not part of the solution. And uh, so we wrote a book trying to, uh, in one sense and document the state of state capability around the world, which is pretty parlous. And given the wildly ambitious agenda laid down in the sustainable development goals, and just the sheer number of pop you know, the population growth that's going to occur over the next 30 years if you've got bad systems now having to deal with twice as many people in then over the next uh, two de- two or three decades it's just not a recipe for good things happening in the world <laughs> so uh we decided to to write a book that was simultaneously sort of a critique and a measuring of the state of state capability uh but the second half of the book was sort of a completely different genre almost altogether. it was sort of a laying out of A practical agenda for for how we think things should be done differently. And uh, that's a large part of all of our work programs now is sort of trying to fulfill uh, the mandate that we laid down or the the challenge that we laid down, I should say. And uh, Trying to work with a whole bunch of partners around the world who are committed to trying to think about this and, more importantly, do this kind of work in a a different way. And that's pretty much all-consuming at the moment. That's what what I'm just back from doing work on that. I'll be doing more of it next month. It just just keeps on coming. (laughs) (laughs) So I think
0: that's fascinating work. Um, Let me go quickly to uh, beyond kind of the research and laying out the case for building state capability – um, the second half of the book does get into actually laying out a strategy for action, and uh, and so that's called you call that the problem-driven iterative adaptation. And so, can you describe uh, what that is and and what that looks like in practice?
1: Yeah, sure. Uh, you don't have a, a life in development if you don't have an acronym, right? So we yeah. have to come up with one. <laughs> yep. So PDIA is our thing. It wasn't. This. It's uh, it's the second one we came up with, just to be consistent with our own uh, our own arc here. This is, a, um, but as you know, as those four different words, we chose those four words very deliberately because we want people to be problem driven, and and and, uh, and by that we specifically mean see the role of the external agent as uh, as as trying to help people to nominate and prioritize the problems they actually face, and to keep doing that multiple times because it's, I think, so much of the work that uh, high-level international agencies want to do and that the people they hire with prestigious degrees from fancy universities, uh, it just creates a very powerful professional identity of my job is to solve other people's problems and a real expert casts their gaze over a situation and quickly discerns what the problem is, do, uh, emerges Delphic like with the solution to that particular problem, and then uh, flies off and lets other people try to <laughs> make it actually happen. And uh, and uh, the very essence of working with complex problems is that the very essence of what the problem, problems or interacting nature of multiple problems that underlies the the, the issue. Is not clear, and most of those problems then don't map neatly onto a technology that for, for responding to it, and the indicators for measuring the, the health or illness of those particular issues in a particular point in time aren't clear either. And so it, it's, it's just a one. It's just very messy, but no less important. You know, if we're trying to track the the state of our marriages over the course of a year what would be the no indicator that we would have like a heart rate or a blood pressure that we would <laughs> use to be able to sort of it's all it's inherently subjective and f- experienced and felt and uh I think a lot of issues pertaining to legitimacy and the uh, and process legitimacy in particular there's, theres you can ask people on a scale of one to ten sort of how how legitimate was that decision to you, and you can aggregate all that up across ten thousand people and get a number and publish it but uh, I, I, you know a lot of these issues just uh that 's just an inherently crude way of getting at what is un, un, what is fundamentally a much more uh, difficult to discern issue. So the whole problem diagnostic part is something that we wanted to really stress right from the beginning. And uh, that, is a, that has implications quite significantly, I think for what expertise is, what it means in this particular space, what role external agents play when they're trying to do the, the work of development. Uh, if you take the whole problem diagnostic work seriously and as, uh, and as the groups that are doing the PDA approach uh, do, it can be months to actually figure out. You know, we want to figure this out in a day. We think, oh, let's have a meeting and we'll sort of just bounce around a few ideas and we'll come up with some sort of list and then we'll go to for it. <laughs> but you know, for a big bureaucracy with tens of thousands, or in some cases hundreds of thousands, of employees, the process by which you do any of these big diagnostic exercises just can take a really long time. And it's it's how you then get internal legitimacy for processes of change. It's not about sort of being passive in responding to the, the so-called experts that fly in and tell you what to do, It's just being involved in your own diagnosis of your own problems, and then having a stronger sense that the issues we're now wrestling with are ones that we ourselves have, have nominated rather than what someone else has just told us to do. Um, with the most complex of these problems, as I said, it's not obvious what you should do. Your, and because it's not obvious to uh, articulate upfront what the likely solution is gonna be, you're probably gonna have to try at a bunch of diff- different options. And not all of those are going to work. <laughs> so how do you build out an administrative system that tolerates uh, things happening that actually don't work? That's and, all the, and not for want of effort or resourcing just for it just turns out that's not going to be the right way to think about this particular problem and so how do you report on that how do you write that in such a way that doesn't become a scary headline in a paper where a world bank official concedes he has no clue about what he is doing <laughs> uh, you yeah, know that's just not, nobody wants that so uh, how do you protect the space for doing this iterative work where you're experimenting you're learning and changing and adapting in real time in response to Uh, a a space that's been created for doing that kind of work and that takes a very high level of political support to protect people for doing that kind of work because everybody knows their political enemies are going to be quick to jump on any sort of sense that people are just flailing around and uh, with like headless chickens and don't really know what they're doing um, and then ultimately the, the adaptation part is sort of how do we keep the, uh, the iteration and adaptation part is all also about really trying to put that process uh, in constantly in motion, it's not a one-off exercise, you have to build You build capability in the same way that you build capability to ride a bicycle or to play a musical instrument or to learn a foreign language, you, you learn it by doing it, not by listening to <laughs> lectures on it, you have to actually do this kind of work itself and uh, again, when in the in the world of development, so much of it is seen around the the cult of expertise of of external partners that come in and tell people what to do, or actually do the work themselves. And uh, the essence of a PDIA approach is is uh, getting people on the bicycle and uh, putting them at the top of the hill and helping them to figure out how to ride the thing, because it's uh, unless they themselves learn how to do this kind of work. Uh, then it's really just, uh, they're just copying somebody else rather than owning it and being able to build up their own collective skill set for doing this kind of work. And I haven't got time here, but that's just just not how most development practice is done. It's certainly not how the whole work on the rule of law is done. And rule of law is quintessentially done through expert driven fly in a model from the outside and then just hope it sticks and graphs onto what's already there. But if you took an approach to justice where you begin with what the problems for citizens look like and what the uh, demanders of justice look like rather than just working exclusively on the supply side of justice, you end up with a very different kind of lens through which to see this challenge, a very different entry point for which you begin to start addressing it, a very different kind of expertise that you mobilize to try and respond to it. And uh, that's been the sort of the, I wouldn't say call it a revolution, but that's been the change in mindset, shall we say, that we're trying to to bring about. Um, as a complement to orthodoxy, if you want to build a bridge and a road, there's an, there's an entirely sensible set of administrative. Tools for doing precisely those kind of work, and plenty more roads and bridges to be built in the world. It's just the, it's that we're now so vastly expanding the remit of development into this complex space. We just shouldn't be expecting one administrative tool, the log frame, or anything else, to do that kind of work. It wasn't built for that kind of purpose, and we shouldn't expect it to. We need to have so equal degrees of creativity and persistence in trying to come up with uh, that administrative frame that an uh, Allows us to do this kind of work. So the, the meta task, as it were, going forward is really how do we uh, build out a new administrative platform that allows us to do this kind of work uh, faster, better, and at scale.
0: That's great. And uh, I found the book really fascinating and helpful and insightful, even just thinking about what does it look like to have more iterative approaches within an NGO and, and applying it in that context as well. So switching gears here a little bit, the World Bank website mentions that uh, some of your current research is around using mixed methods to assess the effectiveness of complex development interventions. And I think many listening to this can certainly appreciate the complexity of development interventions. So I guess, would you have any uh, suggestions or advice for those who are conducting research within Accord organizations, for how to best use mixed method approaches,
1: I think the general principle is that you need to have a a, a, a big and, and varied toolkit to be able to take on any job. How right? uh, plumbers and carpenters and painters—I mean, they, they, or doctors, nurses—everybody has an array of different tools in their kit for being able to address the problems because they confront because those problems are many and varied and different and uh, they uh, just require a different array of responses. So the, the, I hope, non-controversial first point is just that we face an array of different challenges when we're doing research, when we're doing evaluations, um, when we're doing, when we're trying to make or uh, push back against the claims that, that need to be made in development and so having a recognition that the all, you know, one size doesn't fit all—that uh, and not just in a, in a axiomatic sense, but in a quite substantive way—the one needs to have an array of different methods and tools available for doing this, doing this kind of work. And one is often working under various uh, quite severe time, budgetary, and, and uh, human resource constraints. We've, we never have enough time to do this kind of work. We're under a lot of pressure to tell stories one way or another that support a prevailing reality. If your job is to assess a big national program, <laughs> and the president or the prime minister, of course, wants happy stories to come out of that. Or if you're doing a, a flagship program for a mayor in a city on the eve of an election, you know, being the researcher that comes up with uh, the finding that, yeah, hey, maybe this actually isn't working so great. You, know, you don't want to be in that position. Like, everybody wants to be in a in position where... Telling happy stories to powerful people, but research is not about telling happy stories. It's about calling it like it is and living with the consequences. So, uh, again, having having an array of methodological tools, and r- robust ones that can uh, be used collectively, or as necessary for particular audiences that might find one forms of ev- some certain forms of evidence more compelling and and relevant than others. Uh, that's that's all I, I, another part of it. Um, and I, this, what I just mentioned there is is that the fact that you're not just doing research to keep another bunch of researchers happy. That's I mean, that's quality control. That's how you assure that the, you're meeting professional standards. But uh, what comes out of an evaluation has to be usually has to be conveyed to very different audiences. And uh, learning how to be able to speak different methodological languages and use different forms of evidence to be able to speak sensibly to policymakers who may not know one end of a regression model from another, you've got to be able to have uh, at your fingertips uh, ways of being able to turn all of that into a vernacular, into into a local language that resonates with with your audience and the people whose taxes may have been paying for all of this Um, so again the, the methodology is sort of just done pragmatically for the purposes of upholding professional good practice but it's also done to help convey uh, the findings of what you're doing to the uh, different kinds of audiences who have very different understandings of what counts as a question and what counts as an answer. <laughs> and so uh, those issues are, are true just in a strict interdisciplinary uh, sense of uh, university life, but it's uh, even more powerful when you are speaking with people who aren't, who are whose job it isn't necessarily to be particularly sophisticated methodologically, but whose job is to vote one way or another, up or down, on on, a, on often very consequential pieces of legislation or on, on funding uh, revenue streams. So. Again, the, however you get at it, it seems to me that you just, as any serious researcher needs to, even if their any, if their particular skill set uh, takes many years to acquire and, and inherently sort of tends to be grounded in and, and trained in one particular discipline, uh, you haven't got to hang around this development business too long to realize that you know, oftentimes you have to do a lot of entrepreneurial work in research as well because you haven't got a perfect set of conditions to work under you've got to improvise and optimize and uh, having an array of different options at your disposal really helps you to do that in a more pragmatic and more efficient way.
0: So just building on on that I guess I'm curious um, I think the the sense is that you know that quantitative methods and these you know the, the regressions and all these things you're talking about uh, tend to be maybe the preferred methods when you're talking about serious research and yet I know for organizations in our network, uh, a lot of times the type of development we're working toward, uh, we would consider holistic. So you're taking into account uh, the, the social and the spiritual in addition to the material and physical. So a lot of times we're looking to the qualitative tools uh, within, the, within the toolkit. And I guess from your perspective, I'd be curious, have you seen, um, especially within the World Bank and within uh, these, these larger multilateral institutions, has qualitative research is that gaining perhaps in credibility or even in influence and in how it's influencing policies or is is quantitative really what kind of kind of drives the agenda?
1: I think when you're talking about public policy more broadly, you're trying to look at the you know did Obamacare work or does raising the minimum wage help workers or uh, not <laughs> when you're asking questions like at, at that sort of level where there there is big data of what, you know both in a noun and adjective sense. There's just lots and lots of data points. There's lots of issues, uh, sub issues around which there's uh, vast amounts of quantitative data. Of course, you want to be able to have access to all of that. Um, but <clears throat> as you implied, and, and it's not just true of, uh, of faith-based organisations and if the kind of Work that much of the work that the World Bank does, um, even if it's done at, at large scale, you have administrative data, for example, just number of people that have been uh, <clears throat> that have participated in a program, numbers of dollars spent, number of staff working on it, number of villages where this has been introduced. I mean, there's all sorts of obvious ways in which one needs to be able to uh, use the existing types of data to answer the kinds of questions you're asking, but uh, the the reality is, I think that most, even the most hardened people that have been in this business a long time, eventually you just you have an experience that in a in a fieldwork type setting, we just says, "Man, this is just I, I don't know what to do with this. I just don't I don't know how to capture this in a, in, in within the methodological frame that I'm that I'm used to." Yeah. Um, and poverty measurement, which is the the group that I, I'm a part of here at the World Bank, has there's, there's been that started out as as a, as a very earnest attempt just to try and measure poverty in the strictly material incomes and expenditure space just because that we didn't even have that. (laughs) And that itself is hard enough. It's super hard to measure, even in the even in this narrow sense to get comparable surveys from comparable countries with different units of analysis so that we can come up with a nice little simple graph to put in The Economist magazine talking about what global poverty is going up or down in the world. Um, so it's really, really hard just to even do do stuff, even in a singular, narrow sense. And so many people, have, you know, my colleagues are wonderful people and spend their whole life trying to just uh, just get the, the money metric aspects of poverty right. There's, you know, very noble careers can be spent just in that rabbit hole. <laughs> um, but I think as you're implying and as, and as uh, the world is telling us, there's just so many Different ways in which we can and should uh, engage with these kinds of questions. And uh, it usually takes a pretty forceful leadership team to be able to push those kinds of work. Um, uh, Fifteen or so years ago, we had work here at the World Bank um, called the Getting Out of Poverty uh, series and the Voices of the Poor studies, which are all these massive, big qualitative exercises to try and. get access to the different ways in which people experience poverty and the ways in which their own life stories uh, could help uh, contribute to a better understanding of what the pathways into and out of poverty might look like for different groups in different countries and for different identity groups and uh, all the different variations then in the ways in which people self-identify themselves and the way in which policy does or does not recognize all of that. so it's 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 always an attention and probably should be attention as long as it's a constructive one. It's it's the basis then on which uh, good things happen. Um, but it just uh, the the reality of big organisations is that the very logic of big organisations lends itself to to pretty big but crude uh, metrics of of human welfare. And the, the challenge always is to try and recognise that people don't live by bread alone, that, uh, that they have other things that they care about in their life that uh, we can count how much bread you eat every day and what the cost of the bread is and what the ingredients of the bread look like and we can do all sorts of fancy Greek modeling on the bread. Um, but when you're in the space where it's not the only thing that matters to people, then you've got to have a very different kind of uh, mental model and, and methodological apparatus for engaging with them.
0: Yeah, I think that's a, that's a really great way to put it there. Um, so uh, as we kind of wrap up here, uh, I want to mention that you are also on the editorial board for Accord's new journal, the Christian Relief Development and Advocacy Journal, and uh, which has its first call for papers out right now. So I guess for those listening who may be considering submitting a paper to this new journal, from your perspective, uh, what kind of papers uh, would you be interested in seeing and would you like to see submitted?
1: <laughs> um, well, what I think might be interesting might not necessarily be what uh, <laughs> other readers or producers of, of papers uh, might be doing because we all live in our own little epistemic sure. worlds, whereas, as I said before, what counts as a question or what counts as an answer is is, is likely to be very different. But, um, uh, well, the kinds of things that I think would be interesting, uh, there can be some more pragmatic sort of operational kinds of issues and some more reflective uh I to say theoretical, maybe theological kind of questions. I, I, the, I think it'd be really good to see more about, um, as you were implying before, about how small organizations with small budgets and small sample sizes and small everything <laughs> um, doesn't just uh, rely on the happy photograph with a mother and her baby in, a, in the fundraising newsletter as the basis on which they were able to um, make credible claims about the work that they're doing, because I think that's um, – you know, that's that's marketing and marketing has a place and it's, it's doing what it's doing. But I think the for a profession to be a profession and for people to be honest and accountable with the money that they've managed to secure from people who could have spent it somewhere else, I, I think it'd be really interesting to look at how uh, small faith-based NGOs are able to uh, accommodate uh, the full array of outcomes that probably accomplish what they do. I'm sure there's lots of good successes, but there has to be, uh, by definition, if they're doing hard work, If and I think a lot of faith-based organizations explicitly choose to go where the angels fear to tread. They're going places where it's even more difficult to be able to get good data. It's even more unlikely that what they're doing will show some nice little neat success in a six-month or a 12 12- Month time period, um, so under these really difficult circumstances, difficult in a physical safety sense, difficult just in the uncertainty sense, difficult in the in the, we just haven't got data in a traditional sense, probably of any kind to really help navigate this. How to, how nonetheless do people uh, uphold some pro- basic professional norms of uh, of, of research in, in, in that kind of space? I mean there'd be re- there'd be there's always a need for more of that kind of stuff because I, I think it's you know, how do you turn the, the textbook principles into into reality in in small, small organizations in tough places? That'd be a great paper. Um, and just and also the one that I had a student of mine wrestle with uh, recently. Who was, who was Jewish, but um, she was really intrigued by this idea that. There have been obviously in Jewish theology that has been thousands of years of invocation that people should tithe, they should give their money, they should and give it to the poor, or they should give it to try and, in, as, as a general principle, sort of do it to make the, make the world a better place. But why was there never any corresponding imperative to... Um, Put put it where it's going to have the biggest impact, and like have, put it where it's going, to, and, and try and be more strategic in in sort of placing this. You should optimize the allocation of your tithing to those places or organizations or issues around which you can think you have the biggest impact. And and that's not, I don't think that's biblical. I am not just and not just Jewish. I think it's a, a Christian thing as well. We don't we don't have any sort of theological imperative. I don't think that we should be obsessed with the 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 high impact of our work <laughs> and uh why, or if we do it's vastly outweighed by the fact that you should just give anyway it's part of it's part of what it means to be in the faith community is that you you contribute financially to it but you we don't have a corresponding imperative that maps out to- a deep utilitarian logic about how we should spend all of this kind of money. So I think there'd be really interesting, theolo- I would love to read a good theological piece that sort of explains why we are so obsessed with the giving part per se and much less concerned about what happened with the tithe that we just gave. <laughs> and if that's changing in the 21st yeah. century, are we in fact now much more concerned about uh, bang for buck and all this kind of you know uh, kind of thing. And is that uh, is, is that biblically consistent or is that just uh, us conforming to these broader norms or paranoia about uh, wanting desperately to be seen that uh, what we are doing works in some instrumental sense?
0: Those are those are some great prompts, and I would love to see see papers on that as well. Those those are really uh, fascinating ideas. So uh, so thanks for uh, taking the time to uh, walk through those. What would be As we end here, what would be uh, maybe the two to three most interesting books you've read this year that you would recommend? (laughs) (laughs)
1: Um, One of my uh, heroes or one of the people whose work I've most learned from in development uh, in my career uh, has been Al Hirschman, who's now passed away, but was for many years at Princeton and Columbia and uh, had a wonderfully... Incredibly interesting life, but um, he once described development as an epic adventure. And when I teach my class at the Kennedy School, that's what I invite people to to join us on is is an epic adventure. (laughs) So I'm I'm always I'm always intrigued by epic adventure stories, biographies, or uh, people that took on super difficult problems without any sort of clear confirmation that this was the right thing to do, that they knew exactly what they're doing, that kind of figured it out as they went along. Very, very PDIA-esque before we had language for talking about it that way. So literally the one I'm just finishing up at the moment is on a guy called David Thompson who the first person to map out all of western canada in the early parts of the 19th century and just how you know these people did this for did for 20 years surviving winters in the in the you know the wilderness of of canada and just uh, having to do endless amounts of negotiation between the different um in, uh, indigenous communities, native uh, native tribes, and I, 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 whenever I'm feeling like I have a tough job, I just sort of think, man, that's just my, I'm gonna have a, I have a piece of cake in my life compared to people that would have to risk starvation, risk being uh, you know, <laughs> freezing to death in the middle of, of the wilderness and who had, didn't have, literally didn't have any clue where they were. They had to map it all out as they were doing it. That was the whole point was that they have no map to guide them. And we have lots of maps to guide ourselves now, but there are lots of people who had to function in a pre-map kind of world, <laughs> and uh, people all the, the, uh, the, the all the books about the people who tried to end the divine right of kings, for example, who sort of said no, everybody should be subject to the same laws, and they had the, no one really knew how to do that. Everyone had to figure out how to do that. Um, and um, so, the Tyrannicide Brief, I think, is another wonderful book that I've read uh, that is just the story of, of, of how groups of lawyers, knowing full well that they would probably end up dying for the cause, nonetheless decided that uh, the higher purpose needed to be served and that they would figure out how to rein in an out-of-control king and uh, and 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 bring about what turned out to be a, a long-standing revolution in uh, and bringing about recognition that all humans uh, in any given society should be subject to the same rules of, and, and as everybody else. And that had to be invented, that had to be imagined, that had to be fought for. And uh, so those people were on epic adventures in a much more bureaucratized kind of way. I think uh, we're all doing... We're trying to codify and manage all of that through nice little Excel spreadsheets and uh, log frames and all the rest of it, but we're still trying to map out what is is inherently a very uncertain process and uh, keeping it a little mysterious, keeping it uncertain, being okay with the fact that we don't have it all perfectly mapped out and we never will and we don't want to live in a world where we do. Uh, I think that's all. Anyone who's sort of embodying that sort of spirit in their work and uh, can write about it. Uh, that's the stuff I love to read. That's
0: awesome. So I'll uh, I'll make sure and put a link to those in the in the show notes if anybody wants to uh, to check those out as well. And now, uh, where could people find you and your research online? Where should they go?
1: <laughs> it just sounds very vain, but. Uh. <laughs> Google me, as they say. Yeah. Like, yeah, That's seriously. I, I, I do a whole bunch of different things. So my, my. I guess my World Bank webpage sort of contains the stuff that I do in uh, through the World Bank because that's just that's that's just done sort of in a performative kind of way. But um. I have stuff at the Kennedy School. I mean, I, I, I deliberately don't want to have it all centralized. So that just creates more work and yet more people to respond to. So <laughs> I'm I, I'm okay with no, I, I have, I'm optimizing really just in terms of the things and people that I can say yes to. But uh, if you just you know type my name into as, as I said into Google and then uh, or Scholar Google, I mean all the stuff I've written is uh, is all of, is, in, is on my Scholar Google page. So uh, all the papers I've written all the things that I about for a living are, are all there. Um, or if, if you want to ask a specific question, you can email me and let's find out of all on the internet too. <laughs> <laughs> I want everybody else would do it.
0: Wonderful. Well, it's been, uh, it's been awesome talking with you. I really appreciate uh, you taking the time to do that and excited that you're on the editorial board for the journal. And hopefully you'll be able to see some of those papers uh, that you're wanting to see um, come in and, and just want to thank you for the work. Uh, the great work you're doing at the World Bank and at the at the Kennedy School, and I uh, really enjoyed talking with you.
1: Very good. Thanks, Nathan, and thanks to everyone else who's uh, been following this along uh, wherever they are right now. Uh, we, Both of us uh, appreciate the, make, you you making the time for that because uh, if there's no audience, this is uh, where the tree that fell in the forest and no one cares.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Have a wonderful day. All right. Thanks, Nathan. All Bye-bye. Right.